1: Well, it's a book that features figures such as Flannery O'Connor, Ayn Rand, James Baldwin, Norman Mailer, Saul Bellow, Thomas Pynchon, all your favorites, including Toni Morrison. The book is called post Post-War American Fiction and the Rise of Modern Conservatism, a literary history 1945 to 2008. The writer is Brian Santon, and he's here with me today. Hello, Brian.
0: Hello. Thank you for having me. Our absolute
1: pleasure. So before we kind of get into talking about the book, which I Greatly enjoyed, I must say. Um, I was hoping you could just give me a little bit of your, well, if not personal biography, your intellectual biography.
0: Yeah, sure. I um, well, I should probably start at my undergrad. Um, I started out as a political science major, and I was very interested in 20th century American history. Um, I as I was taking classes, I realized that I was very close to a to an English major, uh, and so have been taking a lot of American lit classes. And I ended up double majoring in political science and English. And then when I went to uh I went to grad school, I got my my PhD um, at the University of Notre Dame, and I saw this really interesting uh, divergence in. Political science departments versus America, uh, uh, literature departments. In political science, political history, you have in the twentieth century the rise of the New Deal left, and then their fall in the second half of the of the twentieth century, um, and then the rise of uh, the rise of uh, conservatism. But in in literature and in, in English departments, you had this other narrative going on. Uh, which was the rise of a kind of multicultural left. So when I'm thinking of a dissertation topic, I was thinking, what's going on here with these two diverging stories? Um, And then I started to get into uh, this idea that in the early 20th century up to the mid-20th century, particularly someone like Lionel Trilling thinks that what we call highbrow literature does not track very well with progressive liberalism, that highbrow literature challenges progressive liberalism in some way. And the conservatives at the time, intellectuals like Russell Kirk, for instance, and William F. Buckley Jr., they seize upon this and they say uh, conservatism is important in American letters, even if we are out of power now uh, in the Uh, in the mid-20th century, at least our our conservative ideology. Uh, But then by the end of the 20th century, conservatives are not really claiming highbrow literary figures anymore. And it becomes almost uh, unquestionable that highbrow, respected fiction writers are either on the left side of the spectrum or at least on the progressive liberal side of the spectrum. And so my dissertation-turned-book uh, became a kind of quest to find out what happened. Like what w- what happened in that shift.
1: So you kind of gave us the the kind of the genesis, the idea. Was there any particular was it from the politics that it came and the kind of the mismatch between the poli-sci and literature? Or was there a particular like novel or something that you said this is something that needs explanation?
0: Uh, actually the the thread Uh, I compare it to like a sweater has a, has a stray thread. And if you pull on that thread, it might unravel the whole sweater is uh, these articles that would pop up at the end of the 20th century, beginning in about the 1980s, but going up through the early 21st century, which was, uh, I guess you would say, whither is conservative fiction? (laughs) Where is conservative fiction? Where is serious? Where's the serious novel for Republicans? Um, and I thought, man, that's a very strange question to ask. And it keeps popping up, not only in national review, not only in conservative media, um, but in places like N plus um, one. And so it seemed to me almost like kind of ideological mystification. Where is this thing called conservative fiction? That was really the the starting point.
1: Okay. So how difficult was it for you to pitch this as a, a project? Because when I was going through books, I'm like, which ones do I want to read? And yours jumped out as something that doesn't look like quite a, a few, especially in kind of 20th century American literature. Did you have to do a lot of uh, horse trading, a lot of bargaining, a lot of explanation to kind of get people on board?
0: Uh, I had to do a lot of explanation. Uh, when I when I first went to, to grad school, when I first got into my PhD program, I thought I was going to look at literature in the left because I was interested in in American fiction and politics. And the relationship between fiction and politics usually means the relationship between fiction and the left. <laughs> uh, so there are all kinds of books and articles uh, kind of anatomizing the distinction, uh, all, all of the different kinds of uh, politics of the left, these what I call intra-ideological debates. And I noticed there was a uh, it was almost a form of etiquette not to talk about conservatism. Uh, It, 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 you know, left a a bad smell in the room as soon as you brought it up. Um, And so I, I pitched it to my, my dissertation committee um, and, and they were very on board once I described it saying, you know, there, there's not really a book length treatment of conservatism in literature throughout the second half of the 20th century. A lot of articles uh, a lot of um specialized books, like there are books for instance in the subfield of literature and religion um looking at like the rise of the moral majority or the evangelical right in relation to literature um but not this more kind of comprehensive project um, so I did get uh some some pointed questions, but uh once i once i explained the the impulse for the project uh, they, they were pretty much on board yeah. and so when
1: the when the project started you had a particular kind of you know imagined end product how much did it change um, you know in the you know, two and a half years three years that you were writing it what did anything kind of out of the kind of contemporary moment make you switch your focus because it does have one of those great um, great end dates of 2008 uh, which you know, is quite uh, a, a pointed date because um, I would, you know, I was thinking 1945 to 2000, I could understand, but 2008 is even more interesting. Did you have to kind of find appropriate dates and then work within it? Or did you say, oh, I know my, my boundaries and now I can make adjustments.
0: Well, the, the post 45 uh, was a pretty hard date. Cause I was thinking of the post 45 uh, American political, uh, conservative emergence um, with with people like William F Buckley um, and so that was pretty easy to think of a starting date um, but then the the ending date was kind of difficult um, part of it had to do is like I, I couldn't keep going there was a there was a word count limit um, uh, but the the other thing was that when I started this it was during the early to mid 2010s and so I'm trying to think of Um, conservative fiction and then uh, left and liberal authors who are engaging with conservative fiction. Um, And it was not, how to say, it was not as hot of a topic. (laughs) You know, I'm thinking like, hey, uh, can we talk about like the John Birch Society? And it's like, wow, there's these, there there are these conservative reactionaries that aren't really uh, relevant uh, anymore. (laughs) And the project became much more relevant um, as I was finishing it. The dissertation end, I, I finished in 2017, uh, right after right after the rise of Trump. Um, so the dissertation ends around the year 2000, and then in the the iteration that I did for the uh, for the published book uh, ends in 2008 because I was just thinking about um, the way that uh, Obama interacts with American literary culture. Uh, and like I said, if I didn't have a word count, maybe I would have tacked on a few more chapters.
1: Just keep going and going
0: and going. Yeah. Uh,
1: and so before we get into the book proper, was there some? what was the most difficult part to write? Uh, I, I have a theory and I have questions that I will ask, but uh, what part really gave you the most trouble uh, in putting this together?
0: Probably... The the most difficult section was the the, the very beginning, um, trying to um, trying to suss out all of the complexities of the early conservative movement and what they were trying to do. So thinking of people like Frank Meyer trying to do a so-called uh, fusionist um, ideology of ordered liberty, um, and then trying to look at how fiction became a way or a a proxy for these definitional definitional debates about conservatism. Um, So I I had to get really, really deep in the weeds. I was um, doing a lot of uh, archival research with with National Review. Um, The University of Notre Dame had physical copies of all of National Review. And so um, I would just uh, go in the basement and uh, pack a lunch, and I would just stay all day reading National <laughs> Review from the from the mid to late 1950s uh, all the way up till the turn of the century, uh, and just just taking notes endlessly.
1: All right. All right. Well, to jump into the book proper, I'll return. I had a theory, I guess isn't wasn't right, but I'm going to push you anyway. Uh, so one of the big picture questions I had in reading this was I was wondering. Um, as somebody who no longer lives in the United States and I've lived in a bunch of other places now, what happens to your argument if the United States isn't a two- party winner take- all electoral system? Um, mm-hmm. does it does it change anything maybe? Uh,
0: yeah, I, I think it would. Um, it, you know it's a bit of a it's a bit of a counterfactual, but I think that you would probably have a different ideological uh, concentration for literary cultural capital. So I talk about John Guillory. Um, he mentions this, uh, T.S. Eliot, uh, he calls it a T.S. Eliot fantasy, (laughs) that literary culture is this, this place, this autonomous realm, um, that shows you where the most important social beliefs, uh, come from, where they're, where they're produced. Um, and when you have a two-party system, it is, uh, both easier and the stakes are higher to think about um, how literary culture could uh, possibly unify the the overall national culture. So I would think that if you had um, a lot of different political parties, maybe the cultural capital of literature would be really important to like a national traditionalist party or something, but maybe not as important to um, a kind of slightly right of center um, pro-business party or something like that.
1: Yeah, because I'm thinking not not even that I live there but something like the UK you've got like the brexit party would they would they much care I mean, I can imagine the Tories do care uh, yeah and, and you know I mean in Vienna I, when I lived in Austria like you know the fascists who are in charge would they care uh, versus the more traditional uh, kind of conservative parties they might care a little bit more
0: yeah I think that there there's a connection between um Any party that wants to justify elite wealth using elite culture, um, then literature would probably be important to them. But if elite culture does not necessarily marry up to elite wealth, then it's probably uh, not as important. And I think that that's kind of what happens to uh, the post-45 American conservative movement. Um, They start using mass popular culture to justify elite wealth. As opposed to their earlier strategy of, of using, um, you know, the, the kind of Western intellectual or literary tradition uh, to justify power. All
1: right. Well, kind of following up on that, one one thing I was kind of trying I'm trying to be a little contentious against the the, the conservatives, probably by my own disposition, um, is the the story that they're telling themselves in this. Um, uh, kind of culture comfort, whatever you want to call it. Is it the sort of story you tell yourself uh, when the New Deal liberals are in power, that when you're out of power, you can say, well, actually, we are the inheritors of a great tradition? Um, or is it is it a stronger kind of argument that they're making? Or is it just something that forgives temporarily? Um, you know, they're kind of temporarily embarrassed millionaires in a way.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, I think... Um... So, so mid-century conservatives, I write in the book, like they saw, they saw their exile from power, which was a particular kind of exile from power. So um, in the 1950s, of course, we have um, Eisenhower as president and Nixon as is, is vice president. But they are criticizing Eisenhower for uh, ratifying the domestic policies of the New Deal. And so they see their particular kind of conservatism uh, not in power. So they see that exile from power as a kind of augmentation of their perspective. Um, They say that practical politics are kind of like pedestrian. People like uh, Russell Kirk will say, you know, the only conservatism that really matters is an imaginative conservatism. He says partisan politics is for the quarter educated, uh, quoting uh, like (laughs) Irving Babbitt and stuff. Um, So there could be a kind of sour grapes. And then what that turns into is that you know, real, lasting power is found in this kind of titanic struggle for ideas, and that titanic struggle for ideas is manifested in great literature.
1: Rather than popular literature or popular culture.
0: Yeah, the popular literature of the time, which is particularly political for them, is um, things things like socialist realism um, uh, and then even kind of watered down social realism of someone like, like John Steinbeck. Mm-hmm.
1: Cause one of the things I was, uh, as I was reading, uh, that I found kind of you know, conservative writing something transitory, you know, wanting to kind of make the intervention now, um, mm-hmm. um, kind of like make a point about Eisenhower being a pawn of the reds or something, yeah. um, seems to not quite live up to the idea of, well, but this is something for all time. Uh, that that's kind of what the great tradition gives us. Yeah.
0: Yeah. The, the great trend, the, the great tradition, uh, transcends these, uh, momentary, um, these momentary partisan ideological configurations. Um, and that's why they accuse leftists of writing social realism and at times socialist realism, uh, as, uh, propaganda or like, you know, pamphlets or something like that. And they will say that great literature is de facto conservative in its profundity and, and depth. All right. Well, well,
1: then let me skip a question I had planned. And then this question, I think you have answered it. But I'm wondering, does prestige TV occupy the, the position in the kind of practical politics, the day to day politics um, that literature did in the mid 20th century
0: Uh, in a way uh, yes and no i think um prestige prestige television is probably analogous um but you know today it plays a significant role in lending um some kind of artistic or intellectual respectability to certain kinds of political positions um but traditionalist conservatives in the mid-century moment they really see great literature um, as, as justifying that um, elite difficult culture with elite wealth. And part of the way that happens, if you think of someone like Thorstein Veblen, is through difficulty itself. So uh, reading a difficult novel and being able to read a difficult novel proves some kind of intellectual or... Uh, class superiority. So, uh, my favorite example is um, Whitaker Chambers, the great conservative writer, um, talking about like the sublime difficulty of reading James Joyce's *Finnegans Wake*. <laughs> Not exactly what you get at the end of the 20th century, where conservatives are saying, "Read, you know, the Left Behind series and Tom Clancy novels."
1: So, all right. So, the, the TV thing didn't work good. Uh, so. When I think about high culture, what about something like opera? Mm.
0: Yeah, I, I think of Buckley, um, who is interested in not only arp- opera. He plays the harp. Uh, he's interested in uh, uh, in classical music, um, but then, you know, later someone like Buckley is writing these uh, fairly simplistic, morally simplistic uh, spy novels. At the end, um, mm-hmm. so you. You always have that strain of the well-educated uh, conservative who is into high culture, um, but it becomes much more uh, de-emphasized as you, as you move through the second half of the 20th century.
1: So I, mean, I guess I, I'm wondering, does, has literature kind of fallen off um, in this argument? Um, and could it make a comeback?
0: Well, on the one hand, yeah, literature has become less important to uh, mainstream culture, and literary historians have you know, talked about this um, at length. But what is fascinating is that there are these occasional arguments that conservative, conservatives make about the need uh, to, to keep uh, the Western canon alive. So they have this rhetorical commitment to the Western canon, even though there is not much of a substantive commitment, especially in in the late twentieth century. So when you get things like the corporatization of uh, universities, which are hollowing out humanities programs, they don't they don't really have a problem with that, uh, even <laughs> though it's you know it's decimating humanities programs. But they do have a problem with the rise of of multiculturalism. Um, so there's this really odd, what what I call a double register. <laughs> On the one hand, they want to look at highbrow literature as this really important sacred space. And then when the multicultural left starts to get involved uh, and starts to win literary prizes, they start to say, uh, oh no, it's actually uh, kind of a Ponzi scheme. Uh, much of Uh, Like a cultural Ponzi scheme, you know, much of highbrow literature is just um, liberals, particularly white liberals, uh, savoring their own self-righteousness.
1: All right. So, in in thinking about that, um, does the idea of kind of the Western tradition, how does American exceptionalism uh, kind of intersect with the Western tradition? um, to kind of there's this idea of like holding up, you know, it's a, the shining city on a hill, the, the the only country that has freedom. Kind of, um, mm-hmm. I'm kind of oversimplifying the argument. Um, how does that? How does that fit by put, placing the United States above all other countries, and yet saying it's kind of the, their their tradition is necessary? Is it simply a, you know, it's a continuation, or is it something a little more complex?
0: The uh... They, they tend to look at American exceptionalism as it's, it's a way that com- it's a kind of concept that compels conservatives to see the Western intellectual tradition tradition and particularly um, the Western literary canon as culminating in the American experiment. Like this is what we this is what we get. So they draw a direct line from someone like uh, Homer and the foundation of Western literature to Faulkner uh, uh, or one of their favorites, Flannery Flannery O'Connor. But this does get complicated in the late 20th century when conservatives start championing uh, that mass market genre fiction. Mm -hmm. So then it does start to get a little bit odd. So simultaneously in the 80s and then through the 90s, you had conservatives saying we need to be reading great, difficult, um, canonical texts, but you should also be reading left behind series (laughs) or, or Tom Clancy novels. Um, so there's this, that's what I call this odd double register of aesthetic value in, in the, um, uh, in the late 20th century conservative movement. And I think it has something to do with this idea of like, how does literature in particular, and then high, cultural, high culture in general, how does it lend respectability to their particular version of politics?
1: All right. Well, now I'm going to kind of show my um, debased literary taste uh, coming out of an English department in the '90s. Um, so you, earlier you brought up Buckley's spy novel writing, um, and you said they were kind of morally simplistic. Um, are, they, are they any good?
0: Uh, yeah, I think that depends on <laughs> definition of uh, definition of good. Um, I think if you take, you know, if you take someone like like F.R. Leavis, um, his one of one of his main uh, set of criteria is like moral moral seriousness, uh, or what he calls moral intensity, um, or um, epistemological sophistication. If you if you take that as a definition, then probably not. <laughs> uh, you also get coming out of Buckley, you know, you get the, the Tom Clancy novels, like I mentioned. You get the Left Behind series by Tim LaHaye and uh, Jerry B. Jenkins. Um, but then you also get these very ideological novels by by people like Newt Gingrich and even uh, Oliver North. And so to say that they are good is to say that they definitely preach to the choir but it does seem like they're probably more time capsules uh, that tell you something sociologically interesting um, but might not probably would not stand the test of time for, for great literature, so to speak. That's a shame. Uh,
1: (laughs) Well, now to expand what we might mean by literature, I have a few things about what would the proper literature of the post kind of post-Goldwater write? You say, okay, well, it's not Buckley spy novels or New Gingrich's stuff. Um, so, would it be something like, and as somebody who has read a lot of it, um, John Birch Society publications, which to me are like incredibly awesome paranoid spy thrillers? Mm. Um, is, is that kind of, could we conceive of that as like the Buckley continues that? Um, uh, or is that just, again, kind of, is that just mere sociology?
0: <laughs> you know, in some ways, I think yes. I think effectively yes. So like, if you think of political literature as narrativizing social conflict, and then providing imaginary solutions. You know, this is coming from critics like like Frederick Jameson, political unconscious. Um, then yeah, like Robert Welch, the the co-founder of John Burt Society, for instance. Um, this is in the uh, in uh, Rick Perlstein's um, book uh, Before the Storm. Uh, he points out that Robert Welch wrote this like massive allegorical novel about uh, this this giant civilization of ants um, giving in uh, uh, giving in to like massive government uh, control that like enslaves them. And Reg- and the Regnery press, the conservative press refuses to um, refuses to publish it, apparently. Uh, but that is definitely a piece with what they're saying in their, you know, in their mailing list pamphlets. Uh, so yeah, I think in a way, uh, conservative, uh, conspiracy theories very, function very much like literature.
1: And then the other one I thought about, and I guess you're you're calling it kind of practical politics. I was also thinking that like a policy brief, uh, the kind of ready-made policies that they have from like Alec, um, -hmm. Um, mailing lists, telephone trees, uh, to me, those are kind of like, those are, I mean, I, I want to expose myself as a cultural studies person. Those are kind of, to me, significant texts in the American conservative kind of tradition. Would, would you say that that, like, we need those to read conservative literature?
0: Yeah, yeah I think so. I, I would add also, uh, like, conservative autobiographies. Um, so coming from autobiographies by people like Whitaker chambers. Um, but then moving up, I mean, Reagan's autobiography after, you know, after his political turn to conservatism, a a whole number of uh, conservative political ideologies are these, um, these narratives, uh, that while not necessarily fictional in the sense of, um, being non-pragmatic discourses that don't, um, that don't mirror reality. They nevertheless use a kind of fictional uh, principle of selection to, to grab certain events uh, and then to kind of uh, mythologize them and then to to kind of point the reader or condition the reader to uh, a kind of conservative politics. Uh, and it, it functions very much uh, within within the realm of. Uh, of the novel.
1: All right. Well, I've, I've, I guess one kind of institutional question, and then I maybe I'll go into a couple of the particular chapters. So, in the introduction, and I'll, I'll read something you wrote back to you. I know I find that painful, so sorry. Um, in the intro, you write essentially, uh, Mike Zille echoes Todd Gitlin's appealing, though ultimately misleading, quip that American liberals and leftists marched on English departments in the 80s while conservatives marched on Washington and took the White House. And then a few pages later, uh, you write, uh, ironically, movement conservatives were bemoaning the growing obsolescence of an older form of cultural capital within the very neoliberal economic agenda that insofar as any one movement can be held responsible at all for large scale socioeconomic shifts, they themselves help to actualize. So I'm wondering, how misleading is Soleil's echo of Gitlet? Oh, that's
0: that's an interesting question. Um, I think it is uh it's it's per, it's persuasive on the surface but i think it is misleading uh because it treats conservatism as a kind of static background um and this is i get into some of the uh existing literary scholarship on american fiction and politics and what you often see is that the most important debates are the debates that are happening between different elements of the left and the progressive liberal side of the spectrum. And conservatism is this, uh, this shadowy presence in the background. And what you will find is that they will, um, different segments of the left will accuse others of thinking they are doing something progressive, but actually underneath it, doing something uh, reactionary. And that kind of like gotcha move is dependent on what you think conservatism is doing. And oftentimes there is not uh, a deep theorization of the dynamic changing nature of 20th century conservatism. That was another one of the impulses um, uh, or catalysts that I had uh, for uh, for writing the book. All
1: right. Well, then, and that's uh, my follow up then. In between those two things that I just quoted from you, you, have, uh, you talk about what your intervention is going to be. And you say, my key intervention is not to stake out an exaggerated role for the influence of movement conservatism in American literature, but merely to point out that the American right has not received the amount of serious attention from literary scholars that its role in post-war American politics and culture seems to suggest it should. And my question is, why hasn't it? Uh, my theory and tell me if I'm mean, somebody who's not in American academia nor in uh, an academic job are there like professional getting tenure reasons? Uh,
0: I don't know if it has to do with tenure reasons um, I do think it has something to do with how much of an appetite do you have for researching conservatism like in the weeds <laughs> um, it, you know all of this stuff is, all the stuff is there. You know, the archives are there. Uh, you, can, you can easily uh, find uh, the kind of text that you need to read. Um, but you have to have a pretty big appetite for sitting down and reading about the history of conservatism uh, through, the, through the primary text. So when I, when I talk to other um, professors, Particularly in literary studies, and I tell them about my project. They usually say like, "Oh, that's that's great. It's good that somebody's doing that work." But I, I wouldn't want to do that. Like, I'm not going to sit down and read a bunch of National Review articles. Um, so I, I think it, I think it has something to do um, with, uh, you know, with the politics of uh, of the profession. Um, Neil, the sociologist Neil Gross, has a really good book um, about uh, why professors lean. Uh, liberal progressive, uh, and he says, and why conservatives care. And um, he his evidence points to a kind of self-selection mechanism uh, whereby the university by now looks like a viable vocational space um, for people more on the left of the liberal side, and it doesn't look like that for people on the, on the right. Um, and I think that also has something to do with why you also don't have a lot of conservative fiction writers, I think that there are similar sociological mechanisms in place. All
1: right. Well, then that leads me to the question that, um, I know the book, um, in, in the twilight of the middle class, Andrew Hoberic writes about him. Uh, next week I'm going to be talking to Jessica Hurley, who also writes about this writer. Um, uh, my question is, and this is why I couldn't write your book. What's it like reading Ayn Rand, uh, to write literary criticism?
0: <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, it's like atoning for your sins. Um, <laughs> yeah, I had to read. I had to read a lot of Rand, um, but it was it was very fascinating to me. Um, and I started to read her um, almost compulsively because I knew that there's one strain of you know laissez-faire capitalist libertarian kind of conservatism that is very impressed with her novels. But then I knew that there were people like Whitaker Chambers and Russell Kirk who like despised her. And so it became not about aesthetic enjoyment, <laughs> but about trying to solve this like intellectual puzzle uh, concerning why traditionalist conservatives despised her so much. And Whitaker Chambers writes the famous um, book review of Atlas Shrugged um, in, in which he uh, talks about how Rand writes socialist realism, but just kind of turned upside down. Uh, and he says that the uh, that the collect or the, that the uh, secular materialism of capitalism at root is not much different from the secular uh, materialism of communism. And so the the traditionalist coming out of a, a Christian and often um, a Catholic intellectual milieu. They, they really um, are critical of Rand.
1: I mean, you write about the novel, uh, about Alice Shrugged in particular, that it takes the form of a popular genre fiction and although gargantuan in size, seems to actively discourage new critical close reading techniques. Now, does this,
0: to
1: kind of be perverse about it, does that then make it difficult reading uh, that makes it the great literature that we should be seeking out?
0: See, I think it's it's difficult um but it's only difficult if you don't share her ideological perspective. Um it's a novel that is uh that is preaching to a kind of choir as one of her biographers has recently famously put it. Ayn Rand has become a gateway drug to the right for <laughs> for young readers. Um and it was uh fascinating to me how Rand is uh, is despised so much by the early conservative movement, but then by the 1980s becomes like the, you know, the court novelists of, uh, of, uh, you know, of the Reagan era. Um, so yeah, I, I think, um, she, she's not difficult to read at the sentence level, but she can be difficult to stomach if you don't, if you don't share her views. <laughs> All
1: right. So on to, I guess, someone we would both agree is probably a better writer. Uh, Let's talk about James Baldwin for a second. Uh, Even looking at the table of contents when I got the book, it was a name that I was not expecting to see Hmm. uh, in the table of contents uh, for a book about American conservatism (laughs) and literature. Uh, Obviously, as soon as I read the chapter, I said, okay, now I see why. Um, How early into the project did you say, oh, Baldwin is someone... Um, basically, he's kind of a, like a, an essential interlocutor for the, the conservatives of his time period. Was he an early presence or did you find, did you find him? Because uh, I think that, that chapter holds everything together in the book.
0: Yeah, you know, it was early because first you had that, the famous debate in the mid-60s between Buckley and Baldwin. So I knew that there was that uh, very specific concrete link then when i was doing my research i found that uh william f buckley mentions baldwin all the time Um, baldwin is like a particular kind of scapegoat for buckley so i was like well that's interesting and then in the earlier six in 63 when he when he published when baldwin publishes the fire next time buckley commissions gary wills who was still a conservative at that time to write what was then the longest book review that National Review had ever published, and uh, Wills is is really um, uh, very scared of Baldwin's uh, of Baldwin's critique. He's he's very worried about what it means. Um, and then the final uh, the final kind of nail in the coffin is earlier. Conserva- conservatives had looked at Baldwin as a potential ally. Uh, and this, what's so funny is his first novel, Go Town on the Mountain, is a novel um, about the black church and about Christianity. And it is a sophisticated, ambiguous novel, but you can definitely read the end as uh, a Christian epiphany conversion narrative. And that's what, that's what National Review read it as. The conservatives are like, well, look at this. Here's like this black Christian author. Maybe uh, maybe he has something to say to us and to our readers. And then by the time the fire next time comes out, uh, he becomes a kind of he becomes a kind of villain for them. And so Baldwin is is um, a kind of constant interlocutor in the 1960s with with conservatism. Um, So I I came to the conclusion that I would really have to uh, have to include him somewhere and make him a prominent part of uh, one of my chapters.
1: Yeah, And you're right. And I have a question to follow up. I think this is a good point for Baldwin. One of the central problems with protest fiction's one dimensionality is that it tacitly assumes that reactionary ideology is also one dimensional, static, and inert, which is a point you've made a number of times already in, in the last half hour. After his debate with Buckley, Baldwin realized that this assumption was fundamentally flawed because conservative ideology, an apologia, no doubt, for a version of the racial status quo, was nonetheless changing before his eyes and was thus perpetually under construction. So earlier you talked about how um, kind of protecting elite wealth through elite culture uh, is kind of one of the main projects. And so also kind of protecting kind of like white power uh, through kind of elite culture is another project. Is and that, I don't know how this fits in literature, so I'll put it to you. Is this kind of the same mistake that's being made today by that focus on kind of intra-ideological uh, discussions of kind of literature and culture as it's just kind of being kind of the exclusive province of the left, broadly speaking.
0: Yeah, perhaps. Um, I think that that would uh, have to do with with how you categorize the the kind of cultural products that we have today from novels which have been you know, devalued in the culture to uh, things like, prestige, you know, uh, prestige television. Um, I'd probably have to think about that a little more. But one, one thing I would just add with, with Baldwin is um, Baldwin is trying to wrap his head, I think, around the, the flexibility and dynamism of conservatism as it is changing in the 1960s. Because that earlier traditionalist, version of great literature, uh, as I detail at at length in the book, is really wrapped up in defending segregation and and defending Jim Crow segregation uh, in particular. Um, And so once conservatives start to move away from highbrow literature, that is simultaneous um, with moving away from these defenses of Jim Crow segregation and starting to get into um, uh, this idea of colorblind pro-capitalist individualism. And Baldwin is like at the ground zero of that happening um, after Goldwater's, uh, you know, landslide loss in 64. Conservatives um, start to configure this colorblind individualism and see that they are not going to be able to justify uh, or even or even say something like, well, Jim Crow segregation is not great, but let's not end it this fast. Like that, that becomes more or less popularly impossible. Um, and so Baldwin, I think, is is trying to wrestle uh, with all of those changes in the 60s. Okay.
1: And, and kind of as a testament um, uh, to kind of Baldwin's kind of significant position in the, the chapter about Saul Bellow, I think it's in that chapter, um, like he returns um, to a, a debate with Baldwin uh, and something you write that um, this outburst inspired by a real life encounter Bellow had while giving a speech at San Francisco State College. I'm sorry, it's it's just him revisiting a, a debate, my bad. But I think this idea of uh, the debate me culture sticks around. Um It supports Samler's neoconservative theory that debating standards at American universities have declined because the new left has rejected the mythical discourse of Western civilization. Now Baldwin kind of continues, like you just said, to wrestle with these ideas, and that you have to kind of—he's like—you have to keep learning, you have to keep thinking, you know. And he—he really, you know, he's constantly developing thought. Um, But it seems like, and maybe I'm kind of predisposed not to like Bellow as a as a cranky old man, but it seems like he's kind of, he's picking at a scab as opposed to Baldwin kind of really doing intellectual work. Um, how, how outside of the norm does this make Bellow as a someone who kind of holds on to a grudge um, as opposed to Baldwin, who's like, no, 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 this is always an opportunity to think better and better and better.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I would start with one of my favorite quotes from Baldwin. Um, when he's, it's an essay about meeting Norman Mailer and Norman Mailer is like, I'm really interested in power. Like I want to know how it works. And Baldwin says, um, I know how power works because if I didn't know how American power works, I'd be dead. And so this forces Baldwin into these, you know, foundational first principle kinds of intellectual quests. Um, which is, yeah, one of the reasons I find him so, so fascinating. Um, Bellow, on the other hand, is somebody uh, who starts out as a kind of outsider. He's very consciously a Jewish novelist. And one thing that often gets overlooked in the 80s, when Baldwin starts saying controversial things, uh, politically incorrect things about multiculturalism, he starts to say, well, I'm being attacked because I'm a white male writer. And it's very interesting because white male writer is very different from being the Jewish outsider of the early and mid 20th century. And so um, Bellow is someone who is a kind of political exile. Um, I was very interested in uh, literary scholar Simon During says that um, he is a persona non grata in literary studies. And I tried to answer the question, why? Because on the one hand, he is ostracized by the literary political left, which for obvious reasons. But he's also writing this uh, difficult, modernist-inspired um, literary fiction in the 1970s um, that has a conservative bent, like Mr. Samler's Planet, at precisely the moment when conservatives are relinquishing the uh, highbrow conservative literature as particularly helpful or useful to them. So Bellow is, is this, you know, high status, highbrow writer who has no political home by the 1980s.
1: Um, what a shame. <laughs> um, so what kind of, this is kind of about Wolf, your chapter on Wolf. Uh, and you say to, to revitalize the American novel, Wolf called for a return to the social realist novel but stripped of its central preoccupation with class and replaced with the American preoccupation of status. Mm. And this is something I think kind of gets back to that elite wealth. Um, like, what I, what I found myself asking was, how much damage has the inability to conceive of class as an economic category done to literary culture, both in you know, what we can call the left, but also to conservative literary culture? that It becomes, in some ways, a status marker that you're talking about rather than access to power and, and, you know, kind of having the means of production.
0: Yeah, you would think if, if, if there was a way to revitalize something like conservative literature, it, could, it would probably be um, a, a kind of confrontation with class, um, and a, particularly a confrontation with, like, the professional managerial class. Tom Wolfe tries to do that sometimes in his, you know, in his satires, Saying that um, you know the liberal elite are interested really in a kind of radical chic. They're interested in producing um, both cultural capital and social capital for themselves by um, uh, trying to empathize <laughs> with with the lower classes, but not really being interested in um, in helping them. Um, but you. The, these descend so easily into kind of screeds or like diatribes because there's not um, there's not a simultaneous self reflexive or self critical uh, engagement with their understanding of of class um, and that's one of the things that is that is usually important in literature that survives is some kind of self critique some kind of uh, Confrontation with human hypocrisy that also implicates you, um, and conservative literature, as we move through the 20th century, becomes less and less interested in those kinds of self critiques. And they even say that the problem with liberals is that they're interested in like intellectual and moral masochism. Like they're always they're always um, uh, you know engaging in this self critique to a fault. All
1: right Well, that I guess that takes me to. a like, a question in the the last little bit of the book about Marilyn Robinson, and the framing you do of your reading of Robinson, um, and this might not be the kind of self critique, but a lot of it comes out of her occasional pieces and interviews and the promotional cycle for writers. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering how much should we take that into account uh, when we read uh, a novel, the, especially now with like kind of the promotional cycle, if you're a, a novel, a novelist of, of some standing, you know, unless you're uh, invisible like Thomas Pynchon, <laughs> you, you hit the circuit. Um, so is that the kind of self-critique we can begin with or is it something we should discard or how would you how would you manage that?
0: I, I think it's certainly something to engage with, especially because she invites it herself. Um, she is someone who is I think above all a Christian novelist and she is both interested in the way that Christianity contributes to the American cultural heritage. Um, I quote her as one, you know, one of her essays begins America is a Christian country. And you would think from some of the things she says in isolation that she would be more tightly connected to to the conservative movement. Um, but then, on the other hand, she's very interested in ways that a kind of um, empathetic Christianity that focuses on social justice um, is not congruent with conservatism, at least with the the um, reigning kind of conservatism. And so, I, I, you know, I think at least um, at the turn of the century. Um, she is a little too self-critical to be taken up in a, in a really serious way by the conservative movement.
1: All right. And that, I think, pulls me up to the last kind of question about the book. Uh, you, you bring in Toni Morrison, uh, who's probably, probably say is the, the most major American novelist uh, of my lifetime, mm-hmm. um, and Toni Morrison makes the argument that a novel need not solve these problems because it is not a case study, it is not a recipe book. <laughs> Um, how how valuable is this insight um in your teaching um that um how far do you think this needs to be spread um because i feel like uh in a a hot take economy especially you know you you watch the eternals it makes you a good person uh kind of like kind of parody that argument um does that kind of Does that have a place in the kind of larger kind of self-critique argument you've just been sketching out?
0: Yeah, I think so. I think for someone like Morrison, um, literature uh, is about these profound human dramas. And, you know, when I teach teach an African-American literature class, And we bring in Morrison in a famous interview uh, says, sometimes I get these questions and the questions are basically like, when are you going to stop writing about black people? Which is to say like, when are you going to write about a general universal novel? And she says, well, no one asked that about Tolstoy or Joyce. No one says like Tolstoy, when are you going to stop writing about Russians or Joyce, when are you going to start stop writing about Irish Catholics? And so she says, um, African-Americans are... uh, particular portals into universality into the universal human experience in the same way that they are for for Joyce uh uh or Tolstoy and so those profound human dramas are are then bigger than any one particular political ideology and they really burn through an ideology that tries to to tries to contain them so when I teach uh all literature, but especially literature that has a political, uh, political valence, um, I look for ways to investigate how literature transcends um, our contemporary political debates. And it actually uh, historicizes or renders our particular uh, today's political debates as, um, as very much lacking lacking in both into intellectual um, and historical substance. All right.
1: Well, to that end, I was wondering, uh, are there a couple of uh, books, and this could be in kind of literary studies and history or even just fiction, uh, that you've read lately that uh, perhaps do elevate the intellectual <laughs> uh, level of what's going on?
0: Mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, one of the best recent... Books I read um, is uh, Redlining Culture by uh, Richard Jean So. Uh, and he looks at um, it's a kind of data history uh, of racial inequality um, in American literature, particularly uh, post war fiction, and shows the, um, uh, how few percentage wise uh, writers of color were published um, in the 20th century. Uh, for all of the rhetoric about the rise of multiculturalism, it's kind of it's one of those books that I wish I that I wish would have been published when I was researching the book. It would have uh, inflected the arguments um, uh, a little bit differently. But then I would I would also point to uh, some older texts, things like Lionel Trilling's uh, "The Liberal Imagination," um, which gives you uh, a flavor for you know moral literary criticism. Uh, that matters. It's not that you necessarily have to agree with Trilling, but you can, um, I think, uh, empathize with the way that he's trying to use literature as uh, as an intellectual tool.
1: All right. And do you have what's your new project that you've got cooking up?
0: Uh, right now, I'm, I'm thinking. Uh, well, I'm, I'm working on uh, a Cambridge Companion. i um, editing the Cambridge Companion um, to the 20th Century American Novel and Politics. Um, so very much kind of rate right my my wheelhouse. Um, and then I'm, at the, I'm in the early stages of working on a second monograph, uh, particularly interested in literary representations of black conservatism, uh, coming you know coming out of my first book, obviously. A- another understudied area. Um, so I'm thinking a tentative title, something like um, post1964 um, Black Conservatism um, and African-American literature. Um, this uh, seems like it would be, uh, both helpful and illuminating trying to understand, um, this odd area, both in lit- literary studies and in, uh, political studies.
1: Well, the book is called "Postwar American Fiction and the Rise of Modern Conservatism, a Literary History, 1945 to 2008. That's Brian Santon you've been listening to. Uh, And thank you for joining me and look forward to seeing the Cambridge Companion soon enough.
0: (laughs) Thank you.